speaking this morning, a personal friend and a friend of many of us here at the college who have been here for some years, Rick Kuhl is a man who was director of development from 1978 to 82, and a man who had a heart for students, still does, and has a heart for God. The Lord's gifted him in many ways, and the Lord called him to Tri-City Church in Vista, California. It's a wonderful thing to have the Lord's blessing on your life. And the Lord has seen fit to raise that church from a church of around 200 to 2,500 in 10 years. Now, that's God's blessing. And it's wonderful to be a part of that. And he also has with his um, church a um, school, Tri-City Christian School. And uh, wonderful things that the Lord is doing in Vista, California, just north of San Diego. And would you welcome with us this morning to our chapel, Dr. Richard Cool, please. Rick, you're up. Thank you for that kind introduction, Paul. One of the things that I did in my three and a half years at the college was travel considerably. I used to go on the road with Paul Plew. He would sing and I would preach, and what a great time we had. There are stories that could be told about him. I won't tell any of them, because he'll have... You want to hear some? See me afterwards. <laughs> uh, it really is good. I felt God leading me into the pastorate. Uh, I had spent three and a half years at the college, and I believe it was the last year I was at the college, my wife and I did a tabulation and discovered that I had been out preaching 50 of the 52 weeks on the weekends. And it was suggested to me that maybe my heart really was in the pastorate and in preaching. And it really was. And God brought us down to northern San Diego County, and uh, I have never regretted that. God has blessed us in so many ways. The things that we have learned and the things that we are continuing to learn, and to see the blessing of the Lord, He has been good to us, and we praise Him for it. Um, I would like to preach a little bit this morning. This isn't going to be a standard sermon, but I hope it will be an encouragement to you. Uh, I understand students quite well, and I would like to speak to you as college students. Because I know in a group this size, some of you, a good share of you, are hurting, and you're hurting deeply this morning. And I'd like to share some things that I have found to be an encouragement to me and an encouragement to others. Some of you are seated here this morning. You've got a big smile on. You're all dressed up. Everybody thinks you're okay. But you feel like you're at the end of your rope. I got a call this morning at 4.45 this morning from a mother of a young man about your age. And they're out searching for him right now. He left a note. I've had it with school. I can't take it anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do. And they haven't seen him for a couple of days. And I saw that man not too recently, and everything looked okay. But something is happening, and somebody is hurting. And I know in a group like this, there are people that are hurting. I'd like to speak about the feelings we have, the attitude we have, and the need to persist despite a number of things that come into our lives. There's a bird that I'm not familiar with other than by reputation. It's called the prairie chicken. Well, we all know about the great soaring eagles and all these things, but the prairie chicken is hardly a type of bird that anybody would want as a national symbol or anything like that. 
All it does is it, it's sort of an ugly thing. It stands around on the ground and it scratches and pecks at bugs on the ground. Uh, it doesn't fly, doesn't know how to fly. It's not good looking, it's just an old bird. Well, by some strange fate, as the tale is told, one day the egg of a, of a great eagle got placed in with a nest of prairie chickens. Well, you know what eagles are all about. They soar, they're majestic, they're wonderful. As this bird was hatched and began its life, that bird thought he was a prairie chicken. And he spent his entire life just walking around, scratching in the dirt and eating bugs. Couldn't fly. One day as he got older, he saw a majestic eagle soaring on the thermals up above. And he said, oh, I wish I could soar like an eagle. The rest of the prairie chickens just looked at him and said, but you can't, you know, because you're just a prairie chicken and chickens don't fly. He said, I guess you're right, and spent the rest of his life pecking at the dirt and eating bugs. He was an eagle, and he could have flown if he would have believed it was possible. You see, I believe in life. Life is basically 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond. When we start looking at people that have excelled in any area of endeavor, whether it's athletics, whether it's academics, whether it's spiritual things, we all face obstacles. The question is how we respond to them. I love to watch Michael Jordan play basketball. I love to see him soar high above the iron and do the things he's so good at. I'm glad that when Michael Jordan was a high school sophomore and he got cut from the basketball team because he wasn't good enough, that he believed enough in himself to come back his junior year and become what he is. Well, we're not going to talk too much about athletics this morning. We're going to talk about you and your life and how you respond to things that are happening to you, things that are happening to you. This young man's mother that I talked to early this morning, what had set him off was grades. He'd just gotten his grades. Maybe you just got your grades. When did grades come out? Recently? Yeah, recently. Well, they always come out. He didn't do too well. And it threw him into a spin, and he hasn't recovered from that spin yet. Let's look at how you respond to life and the obstacles you face. I'm just going to look at a couple of verses. They're from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 11 and 12. And they're verses that maybe you've never heard preached on. They're about one of the mighty men of David, one of David, King David's mighty men of valor. His name was Shammah. It says this in 2 Samuel chapter 23, beginning with verse 11. They're listing the mighty men of valor, and now they come to this one. It says, And after him was Shammah, the son of A.G. the Herorite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. Then the people fled from the Philistines. Now that's the situation they faced. They were always fighting those crazy Philistines. And it says they've gathered around a field full of lentils. Well, I'm not a farmer, but I've been told that a field full of lentils is nothing more than a pea patch. It's just a patch of peas. It's nothing spectacular. It's nothing that's that valuable, except God had placed Shammah there, and he was to defend it. Well, here came the Philistines, as they always seem to be doing. And everybody else fled, except Shammah. 
This man persisted despite the dangers, despite the obstacles, the challenges. He persisted. He stood there. Here's what happened in verse 12. And he, Shammah, stationed himself in the middle of the field. He defended it. He killed the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. Well, I've learned that so much to Christian living is just like Shammah. Find the pea patch that God wants you to stand in, stand in the middle, and stand there and fight as God instructs you to do, despite what happens when the enemies come. And if we play our position, if we do our role as God has assigned it to us, God will get a victory. Not all of you are called to be preachers. Probably very few of you are called to be preachers. But God has called each and every one of you for a role in this Christian life of ours. And our job is to find out what that role is and then defend it and God will have a great victory. I've learned, however, that saying this is easier than doing it. The saying is always pretty easy. It's the doing where the test comes. And what I've learned is as I've watched students come and go, as I've watched other pastors come and go, the critical difference is the persistence of the person. The thing within them that says, I will stay there and I will get it done. It was Teddy Roosevelt, himself a very, very bright man, as President of the United States said, it's not the IQ but the I will that determines success in life. I roomed with a couple of high school class valedictorians when I was in college. They were smart, they had the IQ, but as their life progressed, they're going to be like some of you. The academics will come easy, but you don't necessarily have the I will to get the job done. There are some of you, and, and God bless you, you don't have the highest IQ. And, and you struggle with the grades. But I'll tell you something, there's a lot to be said in the struggle. Because that's what makes you tough. It was Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, that said, I've never really seen a precocious child amount to any degree of success as an adult because it came too easily for them. So some of you, as you labor through on your academics, as you labor in athletics, remember, the victory comes in the struggle. You will grow stronger as you do that. You need to persist. I'm going to give you four things that will try to stop you from persisting. The first one is failure, past failures. You see, some of you have had some colossal failures in the past. Uh, whether it's in your grades, whether it's in a relationship with a man or a young man or young woman at this school or another place, whether it's been a social failure, whether you have failed financially and your finances are a disaster, your, your, your own spiritual life, maybe you have failed God enormously. Some of you have stopped persisting because of past failures. You're letting your, your past dictate your present and your future. Well, we need to persist, number one, despite failures. Some of us have heard the story of this young man that wanted to go in business. He was young. He decided he was going to make his fame and fortune in business. Well, like so many guys who try business the first time, he, he failed. Well, he figured, if I can't make it in business, I'll go into politics. Well, that seems like a logical recourse. And, and so he went into politics. He tried to anyhow, and he was defeated for the state legislature. So he went back to business, had things going, but then the business failed again. 
he decided to go into the state assembly again, and this time he made it, but his sweetheart soon died. He had a nervous breakdown, and when he ran for re-election, he was not re-elected. And now that's hard to do as an incumbent. He ran for Speaker of the House, was defeated. He was defeated for a state elector's position. He ran for the U.S. Congress two years later and was defeated. He finally got elected to Congress, but was thrown out as an incumbent two years later. Well, he ran for Congress again, was defeated. He put his name in for the U.S. Senate, and he was defeated. His name was mentioned around for the U.S. Vice Presidency. He was defeated in that. He tried the U.S. Senate one more time, and he was defeated in that. And two years later, Abraham Lincoln became President of the United States. He persisted despite failures. I believe that we need to look at failures as not so much failures as part of the education process. Let me guarantee you, when you graduate from school and you go out and seek gainful employment, you're going to face some difficult times. The job market out there is not that good. And as you get into your jobs, you're going to face stresses like you haven't faced before. And I've been reading some surveys that show the number of times you will switch jobs between now and the time you're 30. They say you will switch up to five to seven times you will switch jobs between now and the time you're 30. You're going to face some failures. You're not going to be an instant success on the job. But if you look at it as education, you will have succeeded. I know some guys who go into the pastorate and... And this is my, my first church. I say it's my first, my last, my only church. I, I really have no desire to ever leave it. But I, and God has blessed us, and I praise God for that. But there are some guys who go into the ministry, and they just they have all kinds of struggles in their first church, sometimes in their second and third church, too. But I've seen some of these men just keep going and learn the lessons, let God teach them something, and eventually those lessons pay off. We look at guys like Thomas Edison and we hear about him coming up with this, this idea for light bulbs. And we, we are so thankful for light bulbs. And you say, well, how did he do it? Well, he came up with a little filament inside a glass bulb and, I, you know, he just came up with it. Well, he didn't just come up with it. Thomas Edison tried hundreds of different compositions to find one that would burn bright enough but not burn out. Burn with a little bit of heat but not too much heat burn inside that bulb and, and still be able to be seen. He tried hundreds, he tried a thousand, he tried two thousand and kept going and kept going. He tried seven thousand, he tried eight thousand different compositions before he hit the right one. And I'm thankful he didn't quit. It's the persistence despite failures that lead to success. Now, some of you don't fail that much because you're afraid to even get started. I've talked with students before that have come up to me and, and we've got a school and we've got all kinds of kids and the kids will come in and, and they'll look at their grades and, and they'll, you, you may have heard this statement. I could have done a lot better. I probably could have gotten all A's if I had really tried. I just look at them and say, get out of here. I don't even want to hear that from you. What do you mean you could have? You didn't, did you? You were afraid that you were going to fail, so you never gave it a try. So you ended up with C's or D's. Well, deep down inside all of us, we'd like to believe that we are A-grade material. 
Not everybody is A-grade material, and that's okay. But if he had tried harder, he could have braised it from C's and D's to maybe B's or B's and C's. He may not have gotten A's, and maybe he didn't want to find out that he couldn't get A's, but he would have been a lot better off than if he had not tried. I've learned in life a lot of success is just showing up and getting started. That old philosopher Woody Allen, well, at least he's not a theologian, said 80% of success in life is just showing up. Uh, I, was, I wasn't a good basketball player, but I played in college. Uh, if I wasn't around people that knew me, I'd tell everybody I was a good basketball player, but some of these guys have played with me, and they know better, so let's, let's be honest. Uh, but I used to still get points. I didn't get many points, but I would get my share. I, I used to love to follow the fast break when our team had the ball. And the reason for that is I've learned on a fast break, on a breakaway... 50% of the time, even guys on our team are going to miss that layup because of the speed they're moving, the defense, the ball's going to bounce out, everybody's going to fly by the rim except me, and I'm just going to wait for it. And I'm going to show up and have a degree of success. A lot of life is just getting started and showing up. Uh, was it uh, Several years ago, we had a locomotive a, a train coming, I think it was Riverside area, I don't know exactly where it was, and this train came roaring down the tracks, and, and it jumped the tracks. They couldn't stop it. It was out of control. There's nothing as frightening as a runaway train. And this train came roaring out of the hills. They couldn't stop it. It went through everything in sight, including a neighborhood that it plowed through. You say it's hard to get those things stopped once they're started. Absolutely right. But have you ever tried to start one? You can take that train, that locomotive, and have it lie, just standing there, dead still, on a flat piece of ground. And we could put this whole student body behind it, and I don't know if we could move it. If we did, it would be with great labor to get it started. Getting started is the difficult part. Once you get started, momentum is behind you, and away you go. I find that when I'm studying. One of the most difficult things I have to do as a pastor is every morning, every Monday morning, I have to go in my office and get ready for Sunday. Now, once I get started studying, once the, uh, the, the books are flying, the paper's flying, and the brain's engaged, it's not that hard. But you know what it's like to study. It's the getting started that's difficult, the getting started with reading a book. Don't be afraid to persist despite past failures. Don't be afraid to get started. Let me give you the second one. Persist despite, number one, failures. Persist despite, number two, obstacles. As I've said before, we all face troubles. You, sometimes you look around at the other students that are here and you say, wow, they've got it all worked out. You have no idea what they've had to work out. Sometimes we look at the kid whose parents are rich, gave him a new car, sent him off to college, sends them money, pays their school bills, and we say, wow, I wish I had it that way. Life would be so simple. Well, life isn't simple for them either. We all, I guarantee you, we all have problems, obstacles. The test of a person is how large of an obstacle it takes to stop them or slow them down. In 1962, Victor and Mildred Gertels wrote a book, and it, they did a lot of research on this. It's entitled Cradles of Eminence. And in this book, they took the lives of what were agreed upon to be 413 of the most famous and successful people that have lived and have documented lives. 
413. They were looking for common elements that made these people successful. Why were these people so successful? One thing emerged. One factor emerged. Out of 413 lives, in 392 of them, these people faced, and I quote, they had to overcome, quote, very difficult obstacles in order to become who they were. They faced obstacles that would have stopped most people. And in the struggle, through those obstacles, around those obstacles, over those obstacles, however they did it, that's where they grew strong. There was a number of years ago, two 10-year-old boys were trying, they were in a one-room schoolhouse, and, and it was lit by a kerosene stove that was right in the middle of the schoolhouse. And, and these two 10-year-old boys were, uh, they were supposed to feed this stove or this furnace. They made a mistake. They poured gasoline instead of kerosene into this stove. Anybody that's ever seen a gasoline fire and how the vapor ignites knows that this is devastating. One of the boys was killed instantly. The other boy was almost killed. Most of the damage, however, was done to his legs. The doctors looked at him and told his parents that your son will have to lose his legs. There's no way we can save them. And the parents pleaded with the doctor, just give them some time. Give him a little bit of time. See if at least we can salvage the legs. Well, they salvaged the legs. Except one was shorter than the other. They were so mangled. They'll say he'll never walk, however. Well, they didn't know this little guy. And before long, he was walking. They said he'll never walk without a brace. And soon he was walking without a brace. You know how the story goes. They said he'd never run. He ran, and he ran, and he ran. And by the time Glenn Cunningham was done running and winning Olympic medals, he had been called at his time the world's fastest human being. You see, we all face obstacles. We all face obstacles. We watched in the, uh, the, the ice skating at the Olympics recently, Christy Yamaguchi from the United States winning a gold medal. And, and then I, as I'm listening, this whole story just keeps coming back. Her feet were so badly mangled when she was born that she had to have braces on them to straighten them. I think they either pointed out or in, and, and she just had to work so diligently and so hard to overcome this. I don't know what obstacles you face in your life, but I'll guarantee you the obstacles there are to make you strong. And if you persist despite those obstacles, God will bring the success He wants to your life. You probably won't be a gold medal winner. You don't have to be. You just need to stand in the pea patch that God has stationed you in, face the obstacles, slay your Philistines, and God will wreak, it will bring about a great victory. Uh, you'd, you'd look at people, and somebody once said, if you cripple him, you have a Sir Walter Scott. You lock him in a prison, you'd end up with a John Bunyan. You bury a young general in the snows of Valley Forge, and you end up with a George Washington. You raise a young man in abject poverty and you have an Abraham Lincoln. You subject this young man to bitter religious prejudice and you end up with a Benjamin Disraeli. You afflict a young lad with asthma so he can hardly breathe and you end up with a guy like Theodore Roosevelt. You stab him with rheumatic pains until he can't sleep at night without an opiate and you have a Steinmetz. You put him in a grease pit of a locomotive roundhouse and you end up with a Walter Chrysler. You make him second fiddle in an obscure South American orchestra and you have a Toscanini. At birth, you deny a little girl the ability to see, to hear, and to speak, and you have a Helen Keller. My friends, we all face obstacles, 
That's the 10%. The 90% is how we respond to them. A third thing. We persist despite failures. We persist despite obstacles. We persist despite risk. You see, some people are afraid of risk. Some people like to play it cozy. Some people like to have all the guarantees laid out in life. And there are places you can do that. But those of you that have the courage to take some chances are the ones that will enjoy the greater degree of satisfaction. I read a thing about, and, and if you're looking for a job, let me just read. This, this is an old survey. I picked it up out of USA Today a number of years ago. And what they did is they compared two types of professional salespeople. College graduated that are, are sales professionals. They took 750 corporations from across the nation. And as they surveyed those corporations, they looked at two types of people. Number one, those that were on salary or salary and draw. They saw what their average compensation was for 1985. It was $47,700 in 1985. A lot of money, good money. But they also looked at the people that worked on commission only. The ones that if they didn't sell anything, they didn't eat. They didn't get any food. They took the risk. These were professional salespeople taking a risk. Their average compensation for 1985, by the way, was $185,000 a year. Average. You see, the greater the risk, the greater the reward. One of the things that I found in churches is... So many churches and so many pastors are groupies. They run to seminars all the time. They want to know what everybody else is doing. You know, what's the latest idea? What's the latest gimmick? How can we do it? Let's go out and we'll forage for ideas at conferences. It's as if all of the good ideas have already been thought up, and I don't believe that for a minute. Some of you are going to be criticized when you get into a profession. People are going to look at you and say, well, nobody's doing it that way. Well, good. Good. Give it a try. Don't be afraid to take the risk. At our church, we would rather have people copy us than copy other churches. Our church is unique and distinct. You see, it can't be just like a church up here because we're not in this neighborhood and you're not in our neighborhood. Our background's a little bit different than the backgrounds of your churches. Every church is different. And it needs to reflect that in how they implement their things. In your work, don't be afraid to say, I know we've never done it before, but let's give it a try. Uh, I read a quote recently, and this is a marvelous quote. It was written in the year 1899, before most of you and some of the faculty were born. Okay? 1899. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. It was a recommendation to the President of the United States. And in this recommendation, it was from the Director of the U.S. Office of Patents. You know what patents are. You come up with an idea, an invention, and you get it patented, and hopefully you make some money. Well, in 1899, the Director of the U.S. Office of Patents wrote to the President of the United States with this recommendation. He said, I'd like to recommend that we close the U.S. Office of Patents. Why? Everything worth inventing has already been invented. Wonderful, huh? Can you believe what our life would be like in 1899 if we had shut off the creativity? Let me guarantee you, the best ideas regarding churches are still to be thought up. 
And some of you are going to come up with some of those ideas. Oh, the doctrine never changes. I know that. You know that. But in methodology, as times change, we change. We need to be flexible. And some of you are going to come up with those ideas. Some of you in teaching or in business, whatever field God is calling you to, don't be afraid to have people look at you and say, but you know, we've never done it that way. Don't listen. Let me be careful on this. Don't listen all the time to the experts. Don't always listen to the experts. I've found that by and large, experts tend to be wrong. Okay? Now, if you consider yourself an expert, well, you just do whatever you want with that statement. For example, in 1945, Gunther Hogg ran the fastest mile ever recorded. Four seconds. That's fast for me relatively fast for most people, and it was blazing fast when he ran it. It was the fastest anybody had ever run it. But the experts, those that knew the physiology, our bodies and how they function, said, you know, that's good, but we know one thing. He came close to four minutes, the four-minute mile, but he didn't break it. Why? Because we know that physiologically our bodies are unable to run the mile in less than four minutes. I mean, we've studied the, the skeletal system. We've studied the muscular system. We know how oxygen is brought to all parts of the body. And, you know, that's great, but that's as fast as we'll ever see it. It'll never go below four minutes. And you know something? They were right. They were right. 1945. 1946, they were right. 1947, they were right. In 48 and 49 and 50, 51, 52, 53, they were right. The experts were right. Until one man made a terrible mistake in 1954. His name was Roger Bannister, and the fool didn't listen to the experts. By the time he was done running, he had run the mile in 3 minutes, 59.4 seconds. Everybody just, just aghast. You mean the experts were wrong? Well, they are a good share of the time. But that's not the interesting part of this story. The interesting thing to me is that shortly thereafter, when Roger Bannister in 1954 broke the four-minute mile, 26 different men on 66 different occasions shattered the four-minute mile, right after Roger Bannister proved that the experts were wrong. In your life, don't be afraid to take some risk. One final thing. We need to persist despite failures, especially past failures. Don't let them cripple your future. We need to persist despite the obstacles. Remember, we all face obstacles. The measure of a person is how big of an obstacle it takes to stop you or slow you down. And we persist, number three, despite the risk. It's those that take the great risk that receive the great reward. And then, number four, we persist despite that, that terrible word called criticism. Criticism. One of the things I've learned in leadership, and this was shared with me, is that if you want to be an effective leader, whether it's a leader in the ASB, whether it's a class leader, whether it's a leader on an athletic team or any aspect of your life, if you seek to be a leader, you will be criticized. It's not a question of yes or no. It's a question of how much and how often. Because you will never rise above criticism. 
I read one person said that some of the most talented people are terrible leaders because they have a crippling need to be loved by everyone. Well, you know, when I was younger, I wanted to be loved by everyone. When I became a pastor, you see, when I was up here, I, uh, I was heading up the development program, and we were the nice guys. We'd go out and recruit students and smile and tell you about thousands and thousands of dollars in scholarships we would give you. And did they tell you that still? They still do that? Okay, we would give, you know, we'd, oh no, we, we were honest, you know, we, but we would paint a rosy picture and they would like us and we'd go out and raise money and we tried to be nice to everybody and they'd sort of like us and in public relations, everybody, you know, we were nice guys and I figured, wow, as a pastor, they'll just absolutely love me. I'm a pretty nice person, but I've learned something. You're not going to make everybody happy. And if your skin is so thin that you can't take a little criticism, my friend, you will not make it in the ministry. Period. If you seek to go into a position of leadership, if you want to be a school administrator, if you want to be a building principal, you will be criticized. If you want to be a classroom teacher... And you think that you can make 27 to 35 sets of parents happy with you, you are sadly mistaken. And your first year, you will realize that the teaching the kids isn't necessarily the most difficult part. The difficult part is when the parents come in, one group pulls this way, one group pulls that way, and whichever way you turn, you are going to receive criticism. Do you quit teaching? No. You thicken your hide a little bit. You try to do what's right. Two things that I've always lived with is I just try to do two things. Number one, I try to do what's right, to ascertain what is right. And then number two, I try to do it with love. I may have to do something that is not pleasant, and it may cause great pain to somebody, but if it's the right thing to do, we do it as long as it's done with love. And you try to go with that. Criticism. Are you sensitive to it? Are you overly sensitive to it? I've learned sometimes that the criticism is all coming from just a small group, and we, we overreact to it. I, I like the story of George Washington Gothels, who was the engineer entrusted with the privilege of building the Panama Canal. I don't know if you've studied about the Panama Canal at all, but what an undertaking. The French gave it their best shot. It failed. Tremendous failure. The U.S. had tried before, and everybody's getting, you know, they're dying, getting sick with malaria, cost overruns, nothing is working, and all of a sudden, here we go, here's the third major crusade. And this engineer goes to work on it, and he's got this plan where you don't pump water up, it's all gravitational flow, and everybody says the guy's crazy. Well, he, maybe he was crazy. And, and his friend wrote to him as, as all of a sudden things are delaying, everything's behind schedule, they're having all kinds of setbacks. This man believed in what he was doing. And when you believe in what you're doing, you don't stop when you hear a little whimper of criticism. His friend said, George, you're being terribly criticized. I mean, they're ripping you apart in the papers back here. Are you going to answer your critics? He said, yes in time. And his friend said, George, how are you going to answer your critics? And he just gave them these simple words, with the canal, with the canal. 
In other words, I'm just going to do my job. And I'm going to get it done. And if I get the canal done, they're going to look like they are fools for criticizing me. Because there stands the canal. And if I don't succeed, why waste my breath defending myself? Because they were right. And I was a fool. Well, sometimes when we step out on a limb in our church and try things that others aren't trying and we get criticized, I just remind myself with the church. Just get the job done. In your life, when you take a job, maybe you're working right now to put yourself through school, just get the job done. Critics will come. Critics will go. Just get it done with the canal. Well, as I wrap this up, I found that these four things are very, very important in my life. That the people that really get things done are not the pastors that come and church, stay three years, and then leave as soon as they get a little heat, hit a few obstacles, have a few failures. The, the guys that get the job done are the guys that go there and stay there, work through the problems, are, aren't afraid to take risks, suffer a little criticism, learn some lessons, and get the job done. Those of you that will go into the classroom teaching, the ones that will succeed are the ones that don't give up those first five years, and they say the vast majority of the dropouts from teaching happen that first few years. They give up too soon. The good teachers are the ones that persist. Yes, they faced obstacles too, but they didn't quit. If you're planning on going into business, you hang in there and hang in there. If you're planning on going to the mission field, don't expect to go there and have a success in five years. From what I have seen on the mission field, it's those that stay seven years or longer that God tends to bless. They persist in their efforts. When it comes to your advanced degrees, many of you are going to go off to graduate school and you're going to get tired of it. You're already tired of school. You wish you didn't have to go anymore. But those that get the job done are the ones that just keep getting up early in the morning, staying up late, studying the books. When they're short of money, they figure out a way to make it work. They get it done. They never give up. I close with the story of one of my favorite people, Winston Churchill. You talk about a guy that was a colossal success and a colossal failure. If you were to study his early career, what a failure. He went through his prep school. I believe he graduated on the bottom of his class. He had academic problems. He had major social problems. He had family problems. He faced financial problems, all kinds of problems. But he went into politics. He, did, he enjoyed a degree of success, but then he enjoyed some terrible setbacks. As he was uh, the, the director of the Navy, he, he enjoyed some terrible failures there. As he went through his career, it looked like it was over. And as an old man in his 60s, it looked like he was a terrible failure. But as our century comes to an end, Winston Churchill is recognized as possibly one of the greatest men, that, or he is one of the greatest men to have lived in the 20th century. And at the time when the Second World War was ending, the people looked to Winston Churchill as probably the most important force that saved freedom in our world. Winston Churchill. He went back to his old school where he had been a failure. And he was now recognized as standing at the pinnacle of, of his career. The headmaster of the school got up and, and gave an introduction, just similar to the introduction I received, but much more glowing 
stating that this man, and of course we could always redo my introduction and make it much more glowing, but that's all right. We, we, Paul did wonderfully. They introduced Churchill, and, and here's this guy. He is just, this is, this is the guy of our century. He is so successful. He is going to tell you, I've asked him to speak, on the secret to my success. What made Winston Churchill a success? And the headmaster instructed them, you take out your notebooks, you take out several ink pens and take copious notes. I want you to record what this man has to say. Winston Churchill got up there and he looked at them, these young men. The secret to my success. He got up and he began to speak. He looked at them and he said, never give up. And he just sort of backed off. And then he looked at them again. And he said, never give up. He went back another time and he said, never, never give up. And then finally he just lunged at the platform one more time and pounding his fist on that lectern said, never, 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 never give up. And he sat down. Now, my friends, some of you want to know what the secret is to success. I can't say it any better than Churchill did. Never give up. Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, I pray that each and every one of us may examine our lives. I pray for the young men and women right now that are facing some tremendous hurdles in their lives. And, and, and Father, I don't in any way mean to, to belittle the magnitude of the obstacles they face. But, Father, I do know that you have allowed those obstacles to come into their pathway, and you want them to conquer them. Father, I pray that they'll draw close to you as they face them. They might not wade into the battle unarmed and, unalo and alone, Father, but they might come in fully armed with all of your weapons of war and your Holy Spirit filling them. Father, I pray for comfort for those that are facing especially difficult times right now, I just pray, Father, that they might bring those requests, those petitions, and those needs to you. And, Father, for those that are thinking about quitting school, those that are thinking about giving up in their pursuit for a degree, Father, I pray that they might not give up. They might see these as obstacles to be conquered. Father, for those that have faced especially difficult childhoods, whose families are, are disrupted and in disarray, those that are facing especially difficult financial problems, I pray that your Holy Spirit might empower them, give them the wisdom, and give them the courage to persist. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.